Well, it really is great to be here. It truly is. And um, on such an important day. But just good to see you in this new setting. This is so good, this venue. I mean, I feel you've, you've like added that room out there, haven't you? It's just uh, the whole sort of uh, feel is so much improved. It was always... I always liked it as it was. Obviously, when I was here, it was just this big barn and it had its usefulness, but it goes through phases. We remember we had our indoor cricket here at one time, here, the nets and all that, and that was good. That was the time when we used that in different ways. Then that had to come down and we moved on. And this is such a good change. It just feels good in here together with you and the uh, dynamic of, the, of that extra bit there, that sort of spilling out room, it's, it's great. And I... I will look forward, Paul, to seeing the carpet. <laughs> chairs? You get some chairs? Yeah. Not, not, Gary, that I think there's anything wrong with good old plastic green chairs, but it would be nice if they were just that little bit, you know, soft on the old bottom and stuff. It'd be great. So, uh, put your back... Yeah. What, a, what a, an important day to be here. I'm really glad to be here. As, as Matt and Helen announced, they're moving on to, uh, from, for, to lead in Putney. I just feel, by the way when you were up here, God's going to use you much more together. I'm not saying you haven't been used together, because I know you have, but something you said, Matt, I really felt a strong amen in my spirit. It's going to be a multiplication of your ministry because you're going to work together. I think, think, Helen, you're more than able for the task. You really are um, more than able, um, well prepared, all through your life, actually, your background and everything. It's going to be a very fruit... I believe it will be a very fruitful season as you together lead and build team there in Putney. Um, it's, it's not going to be easy, it's going to have its challenges, that doesn't need prophecy to say that, but you, we're going to pray for you here. I'm delighted, I think, I think, I just want to speak to you as a church, say so this is a remarkable church, King's Church Hastings, and some of you won't know its history, I'm not going to bore you every detail, but what is very important is you understand this church has a remarkable track record of growing leaders and often giving them away. I mean, this church has influenced thousands, I'm not exaggerating, with its uh, preparedness to release people, its generosity in giving. And actually, most, I'm just thinking as I speak, I think most of the people I can think of grew here. Now, you will, I will find a lot of churches where this does not happen. Homegrown leaders who grow and mature here. It's certainly true of me, Actually, it's true of Don. Both Don and I became Christians somewhere else, but we were pretty green behind the ears when we started the church here, which started with just a dozen people in Don's front room there in St. Leonard's in Upper Mays Hill. And, and, and to be honest, we grew here. Don went on and led uh, Eastbourne, which is a huge flourishing church, as you know now. Um, I can remember, it always feels funny, I, I'm sorry, I do remember someone, I won't mention any names, the day it was announced, Don was going in tears, saying, whatever will we do when you go? Which was really helpful for me, taking over. <laughs> and uh, really just, just about hit the spot, you know. So, um, but what we did with the team, and Jeremy Simpkins was part of that team, and Steve Brading, we saw the church grow from 180-ish to 350 before I moved on. And it... And, and, Steve Brading, out in Sydney, he was here for 11 years. Jeremy Simpkins, who's got an apostolic ministry in the north of England, he's overseeing the church, well, I don't know, it's anything in the Northern Hemisphere, it seems, some days, Canada, Northern Ireland, as well as building a church in Manchester. Jeremy, these people, 
didn't just pass through here, they were homegrown here, Jeremy was. Uh, there's, you could add Simon Wong. I remember Simon becoming a Christian uh, and growing here. I, uh, there's obviously Nigel Dutton as an unsaved teacher, young teacher at the Grove, got saved, ended up leading the church, now leading church plant in Berlin. Dave Lyons, well, he was a Christian certainly, but God got hold of him and he, he, he grew and changed in leadership here. At this moment, very key part of the eldership at Grace Church in uh, Chichester, just don't, I don't think I'm going to remember everybody. I was just looking at your newsletter, Johnny Wales. I can remember John, quite a headache actually. <laughs> uh, young teenage John. But I mean, God's got hold of him. What's he doing? Leading something in? I hardly read it. I just glanced at it. Hartlepool, yeah? So that's John Wales. I mean, that's, I mean what a record. It's an incredible record. Um, yeah, now it's going to be Matt leading a Putney. As Matt rightly said, I remember him becoming a young Christian here. Or young, he and Nick, quite um, raw, really. They're not quite so raw now, but a few airs and graces have grown over the years. But still, keep, don't, don't lose your edge either, either of you either. I've just remembered that. Uh, I mean, I don't know where to start because Paul himself is part of that too. Paul Mann now leading. And, and I guess, you know, when you, you again, I, I'm, I'm guilty of this one because I, the Nigel Dutton caught me say I'd left. Being in Winchester, I didn't, I didn't really keep up to date. And uh, I thought, Crowns, Nigel's going. Oh, ah, oh, I hadn't expected that. Oh, what's going to happen? Well, what's happened is Paul's led, along with the other guys, and the church is growing and flourishing. And it's wonderful. It's just lovely to come back and see it again and again. And uh, I believe, I can see, you know, again, it doesn't almost need prophetic insight, but I can see another crop of leaders here. You know, you meet Santino and Aled and, and Adrian, and, and I, I don't know, I'm not, I'm just, I'm not meant, this isn't meant with any strategic mention, it's a people thing. And you see a whole other crop of leaders growing and clearly, clearly rising to, the, to the, uh, the whole call of what God's doing here. This church remarkably produces leaders, I mean it very influential and there are leaders here who will be leading in the next phase there are people I know that in faith that in a sense there's a as a Matt and Helen shaped gap at Putney but there's gaps here that will be filled there already are I know I think uh, Paul's own strategic thinking is very important I understand people coming into sort of a pastoral deacon role I think that's a superb idea I felt we didn't fully explore that in my time and I wish we had actually but Paul will, by God's grace, I'm sure over the next year or two, be able to pull together and see what God's doing and build a team. It's just so exciting to see history repeating itself again and again. And hear this, the church keeps growing through it all and flourishing. It does. It really does. This is not just, oh, he's cheering us up. I'm not cheering you up. It's true. 30 years of history is testimony to it. Honestly is. It is a remarkable thing. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, and flowing over. And that applies to people and to leadership and to potential leaders and, and to new converts who ultimately end up leading the church. I mean, I've seen that happen several times now in the history of, of Hastings. It's incredible. But all the time, we must remember, which is what I really want to focus on for half an hour or so, we must remember we're here to build the church in Hastings. This is about church, not just about leaders. We want to see the gospel impact this city this town and its, and its neighbourhood around, the area around. And that work never has been tied to one individual or a couple of individuals. Never has been. It's the work of what the Holy Spirit's doing with the body here, the body of the church, the body of Christ. 
and we will continue to reach out to lost people of Hastings. Basically, the game plan hasn't changed over those years. It's to build a church that's full of the love of God, active in the spirit, preaching and proclaiming the word, preaching the gospel, building people up, seeing them saved and added, not wishing to be just a a preaching centre, though preaching, but building people into community, seeing ultimately hundreds, and I pray one day thousands, saved, and therefore impacting the area. And I think you're still on course. I think we look to the day when you need two or three meetings on a Sunday in here, and they're all as full as this. And I think that's probably going to be the way it will work, uh, which is how God just tweaks and alters the, the vision. You know, I might have seen, seen the whole building full once, but I think actually, with what I see what happens elsewhere, and there's a lot of places, that that's probably more what will happen. You might have a couple of services in here, maybe three, and they'll all be as full as this. And gradually, more people get saved, and the town and the district gets impacted and changed. That is still the call here. And I want to talk this morning about being an Elijah people because I'm talking about the church and it is in the context of what God's doing with you and I believe wants to continue to do with you here. So that's what I'm going to talk about. Their references will turn to them in a minute, not just yet. Because I've got to try and catch you up in a story that you, you you aren't thinking about, the story of Elijah. I drew on this, uh, I I preached this series on Elijah at the beginning of the year in Winchester and I I really have felt God stir me about this character and and who he is and what he did. And uh, this one, this morning, I've really honestly felt God said, put it on my heart, it wasn't just a, what should I do, to bring to you because it is relevant to who, what God is saying to you as a church, that you are an Elijah people and you have a calling to this area and it needs the gospel and it already has been influenced but there's a lot more, a lot more to be done. Now, this context of this uh, bit about Elijah, I only want to really, as you see, there's one verse in a moment, just when he hits the, the, the public eye and appears on the scene in 1 Kings 17.1. We'll get there in a minute. But when you look at it in context, there is a very sad story that goes right through from Solomon to King Ahab. And the time of the end of Solomon's reign, which is in 1 Kings 11, to the time of King Ahab, which is in 1 Kings 16, is only 58 years of Israel's history. Now that caught my attention this year when I was reading it, because when I read that, I was 58 years old. I'm now 59. Time does move on. So I realised that the period of time from Solomon to Ahab is just my lifetime. It's really not that long in one way. But it's long enough. If you're young, it probably sounds like a long time. And uh, actually, it's a very depressing story. Incredibly so. We're going to fly through some quick things on the screen just to give you a flavour. These are the kings after Solomon. First of all was Jeroboam. If you pop that one up. These are all brief things that are read. Even after this, Jeroboam did not change his evil ways, but once more appointed priests for the high places from all sorts of people. Anyone who wanted to become a priest, he consecrated for the high places. Basically, he did exactly his own thing, didn't take any notes of God's word. This was the sin of the house of Jeroboam that led to its downfall and its destruction from the face of the earth. Next one up, Nadab. Nobody calls their kids Nadab, do they? He did evil, evil, he did evil, he did evil and evil. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, walking in the ways of his father in his sin, which he had caused Israel to commit. Next one, Basha. 
Well, I don't know if that's how you say it, but that would be a good name, wouldn't it, for your kids? It sounds, comes out of uh, one of those comics, doesn't it? Out of the dandy or the beano. Basham, B-A-A-S-H-R, I bet you don't say it like that. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, walking in the ways of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he caused Israel to commit. Next one, Elah. These are one after the other. This is an interesting one, a bit more. Zimri, one of his officials, who had command of half his chariots, plotted against him. Elah was in Terzar at the time, getting drunk, this is the king, at the home of Arza, the man in charge of the palace at blah, blah, blah. Zimri came in, struck him down and killed him. So he's drunk and one of his men comes in and kills him. What a mess. In the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah. And he succeeded. Then Zimri became king. And then it just says, because of all his sins, his sins, Basha and his son Elah had committed, had caused Israel to commit, they provoked the Lord to anger with their worthless idols. Next one was Zimri, didn't do much better. When Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the royal palace, set the palace on fire around him, and so he died. So he committed suicide as it all fell apart. Because of the sins he committed, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord and walking in the ways of Jeroboam in the sin he had committed, and he caused Israel to commit. So that's the next one. He's off. Then we have Omri. But Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. He walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, as his sins, blah, blah. He caused Israel to commit. So they provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, by ang- to anger by their worthless idols. These- Next one is the one Ahab, where we just stop for a minute. But he is even worse. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ephbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. It is a terrible record. One king after another of those who are supposed to be leading the people of God. So what's the first lesson I got from this? Well, I'll tell you what it is. It goes up. Political change did not signal a change in spiritual outlook. I've looked over 58 years of my life We've had all sorts of governments. We had a new government this year, didn't we? And it's a bit of a different mix. Coalition, Cameron plus Clegg. We had the the wave of new Labour, didn't we? 1997, things can only get better. There was right back in 1979, Margaret Thatcher's going to sort it all out, sort the unions out. Whichever shade you look at, and I can go back quite a long way. Here you are, old man's story. Apparently Churchill was Prime Minister when I was a child, but I don't remember him very well. Then Macmillan, remember a little bit about him. I mostly remember people like Heath and Wilson and Callaghan and Thatcher and Major and Blair and Brown, of course, and now Cameron. And you could argue there's good and bad aspects to all of them. But this is what I'm really interested in. It hasn't brought spiritual change to our nation. It hasn't. Our country, in my lifetime, has become more secular, more morally confused, more godless and even antagonistic to God, more materialistic, more promiscuous, more dysfunctional in family life, more socially messed up, and I would say more openly anti-Christian. That is the truth. That's what's happened all through those political changes. Now, God's been at work. The spiritual climate does show signs of improvement. I would never have dreamt of a church like this where I was brought up. I was brought, when I was brought up in church, it was huge if it got to 100. And it was mostly old people. The only two young people really were Marion and myself. 
So it, it sorted out who we married, didn't it, love? It's very simple, straightforward. No complication. Much easier than you poor people have. Sit, sorted, done, happy. 34 years? Work, didn't it? Yeah. So, <laughs> so, but church life is loads better now. Honestly, it's really exciting. When you think, when there was no King's Church Hastings back in the mid-1970s, there was no Eastbourne Church Eastbourne. Now there's this here, there's the big church Eastbourne. They've already just grown out what God's done with us here. Apart from those people I talked about that are off doing things like Jeremy taking the world for Jesus. And actually, that's amazing. So there's a lot of exciting things. Just think of Alphas and the impact. It's not just us. Think of all the stuff that goes on with Alphas nowadays. The impact of a Holy Trinity Brompton and whatever. Not only just New Frontiers things, all sorts of things. All the worship stuff we have these days and the soul survivors and the goodness knows what. There's a lot of exciting stuff. But... The job is not done. The nation hasn't changed. In fact, it's still steadily declining. It is, isn't it? We are not in a place of revival. We are not in a place where the culture has begun to change back towards God because people are getting saved, family life is coming back into order. When you have revival, places where, for example, drunkenness is rife are changed. You hear stories of it. You know, uh, the gin shops having to shut, the prisons being empty, this sort of thing. We, we, in the end, get an impact so that you get people like the Wesleys, Whitfields, after them come the Wilberforces, and the nation begins to be impacted. We're not there yet, are we? So we can get very excited about having a few guitars and all the rest of it and having a nice building, which I am excited about. But actually, there is a huge job to be done, and we haven't done it. And political change has not brought spiritual change. If anything, it's got worse, exactly as it did in these 58 years. It basically keeps going, Ahab's even worse. They're all pretty awful. And then Ahab marries Jezebel and starts putting in official worship to Baal and actually putting the prophets of God to death, which is what Jezebel did. So it actually got worse, which is a little how it can feel. You know, we can get a bit excited, I don't know, I don't know, excited that they still pray to God at the royal wedding next year. Well, that's nothing to be excited about. You know, if Prince Charles will soon sort that out, if he gets in, he'll be worshipping everything. And, you know, to be honest, you know, that's not revival. What we haven't really seen, actually, at the same time, we've got all the Dawkins and all the other stuff and quite an aggressive anti-Christian feel in our nation right now. Do you know, I am convinced... We need to pray and work for revival. We need to pray and work, whether it's in Putney, Hastings, Winchester, wherever you are, we need to see people saved in their hundreds and hundreds. We need to pray for change in our nation. Of course I'm not actually pessimistic. I'm not, although I say paint a blackish picture, I want to be realistic. I'm not pessimistic. I'm very excited at what's going on in the church. But I just don't want us to forget we have not really started on the main task. We've got to keep our eye on the goal to see biblical Christianity resurge in our nation, to see the gospel preached to all sorts. I was so excited talking to our guy. We, we planted a church in Life Church, Southampton, same habit in Winchester. We keep giving people away. Superb leader, Chris Gilby. He's leading a church plant in Southampton, the centre of Southampton, talking to him Thursday. Or was it Friday even? And uh, 
Friday it was, and uh, they've, they've been there about four years. They've grown from about 50 to about 120, 50, so gather about 160. But this was the exciting bit. In the last few months, they've seen a, a significant number of Hindus and Sikhs being saved. Hindus and Sikhs properly saved so that their foundation course for the church is now done in Punjabi and English. So, I mean, they've got a dozen and some of them, are, they're not all youngsters, some of them are quite mature people who've come radically out of their Hindu or Sikh background. Now, I want to see that sort of thing happening more. Now, it won't be the same around you. I was very excited. It's the sort of thing I want to say. Right, let's move on. Here's the second point. I want to talk about the tedium of evil. Listen, sin is boring. It is. Sin is thoroughly boring. When you read the story from 1 Kings 16 to 1 Kings, uh, sorry, 11 to 1 Kings 17, where we are this morning, you nearly fall asleep. He does this, he's evil. He did the idolatry, he did it. You know, actually, there is nothing creative about sin at all. Sin is repetitious. Do not be impressed by sin. For goodness sake. Oh, I wish I could have drugs and loads of women or men and, you know, do all this stuff. Have you ever really stopped and looked at celebrity lifestyle for a start? Have you actually looked at what happens to the pop world, to the stuff that's in the Hello magazines or whatever? How boring is it? Drugs, alcohol abuse, sex, broken relationships, rehab. Drugs, alcohol abuse, sex, broken relationships, rehab. Drugs, alcohol abuse, sex, and they're all so proud I've been in rehab. You sad, sick person. What are you proud of? What are you proud of, for goodness sake? It's just like this list. They did evil, they did idolatry, it all fell apart. They did evil, they did idolatry, it all fell apart. Honestly, I'm serious. I'm serious and I am compassionate. If you think, oh, he's being a bit cross and a bit cruel. I'm, I'm indignant that we are so impressed by sin. Sin is boring. If you spend all your money just blowing your brains away with drugs and drink and then thinking that's clever, you need, well, I don't know what you need. Well, you need to be saved. I do know. What you need. Because that is not an exciting way to live. That is not exciting. If you really follow God, that is exciting. Elijah had a very exciting life, much more exciting than all these kings. Now, we haven't got time to look at Elijah's life in full. We're just going to do a verse. But it's much more exciting to be following the living God. It is, isn't it? It's it's nerve-wracking if you go with it, like Matt and Helen are doing. It's nerve-wracking. If you as a church keep going with it, it will be exciting and adventurous, as Steve Young said. But it isn't boring. Not if you really get in close and follow the Lord with your whole heart. It is not boring. It's life apart from God that is futile and empty and vain, just as it was for these kings. Well, let's look quickly at the verses that I said. I think they're going to come up on the screen. Here's the verse that I really want. Now, you've got all this tale of woe, and then this happens. Now, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. And then here's a verse from the New Testament which gives another little insight into uh, Elijah. It's from James 5, verses 17 to 18. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. 
So I'm going to ask three questions about Elijah. The first one is this. Elijah, who was he? So that's the next uh, little screen, I think, that goes up. Who was he? Elijah appears from nowhere in the Bible. Now, it's a time of gross spiritual darkness, and suddenly the Bible simply says, now Elijah. We don't have his biography, we don't know much about him. Now Elijah. But the Bible in the New Testament tells us this, and this is a great thing to hear. He was just like us. You say, was he? Well, he was. Just like us. Us, you, me. And the Bible means it. It's a telling phrase. He was a vulnerable man. Now, we're not going to see all this this morning, but he suffered severe depression later, after a high spot in his life, after, the, after Mount Carmel. You can read it for yourself. And he asked God to kill him. He said, I'll take my life. I'm the only one left. I've got nothing to offer. He went into deep depression at one time. He had certainly ordinary needs. He had to be fed. He had to run from pillar to post to get food during the famine. And you can read the story yourself. It's very ordinary and down to earth. We're told he was a Tishbite which means he came from a rugged area, Tishbe, not surprisingly, and actually it was a, a, an area treated with contempt. It was just shepherding. It was just a rugged, hilly area where the only occupation was to be a shepherd. And so someone from there was treated with contempt. That's probably why it's noted in the Bible. He was a Tishbite. But there's a, there's a wonderful, wonderful list of people from places like that. Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. That's a nowhere place. Bethlehem. Who's Beth? What's Bethlehem? You'll find it in the Bible. It's exactly the same here. Now, that can be said about Hastings. I, I mean, I grew up here. Come on, I went to school here, did everything here until we moved to Winchester uh, eight years ago. And I, so I love the place, but I also know it's end of the line, isn't it? I mean, I still feel it when I drive here. You think, why haven't we got decent roads for Hastings? Why not? I'd like to get hold of all the MPs for the last 50 years and drag them along the roads and on, on the back behind my car. Look, you silly idiots, why don't you do something about it? Never mind. That, that's, that's just, by the way, I've got that out of my system. But, but to be honest with you, it's not considered high-grade high place, is it? It's, a, it's like Tishbe. But he was just like us. Elijah was just like us. He was ordinary. He had no of the, none of the advantages of background or of education. He didn't have connections in high places. But God uses people just like that, just like us. God always does it. Some say that Elijah is a sort of forerunner to Jesus because he appears from nowhere, wham, and comes on, which is valid, you could look at it that way. But I think Elijah is a little more of a provocation to the body of Christ, to us. I mean, I don't want to go too far with this, but there is a sense in which Elijah... Uh, we're told in the New Testament, an Elijah movement will prepare the way for the return of Jesus, for the coming of the Lord. Now, John the Baptist was the Elijah before that. don't want to get into this because it sounds complicated. But, but there, I almost feel that you can prophetically interpret that there will be an Elijah sort of generation in the church that prepares for the return of Jesus. That, that actually Elijah has more to say to us, perhaps, than being purely a type of Jesus Christ. Although, all the Old Testament has got something to say about Jesus. So I do feel that Elijah is a provocation to us. He comes from nowhere, he's just like us, there's nothing special, and yet we find him standing before the Ahab of his day, the king of his day, and proclaiming something clear and right into the heart of the, uh, the culture. 
He got somehow in close to Ahab. We just don't know how he did, how he got past the guards, how he got past the courtiers, we're not told. But God is able to open doors. He did it for Joseph, does it for all sorts of people in the Bible. David, God's not kept out by human machinations and plans. And we've got to remember that. We think, how can we influence Hastings? How can we influence England? How can people like us do it? Well, God can open doors. He really can. He did it for Elijah. We don't even know how. But one day, Elijah turned up face to face with Ahab and he spoke right into his face and told him about the ways of God. We're going to look at that for a moment. He went right there. Now, I think this is what we're called to be. I don't think the church is called to get mixed up with the state. Personally, I think that's always been a disaster in history when church and state get hand in glove. And I think it's a disaster today for the Church of England. But actually, what we are meant to do is not be so distant from the culture that we don't speak to them. I think think Elijah is a good model. He's right in there with Ahab, but he's not part of the system. He's not part of the courtiers or the guards. He's, he stands apart, but he's right engaged. So he's, he's engaged with calling his nation back to God. That's what he's engaged with. And that's dangerous, and it's messy, and it's a bit sweaty. He's right in there. Now, that's what we're called to be. We're not called to stand right back from the nation. We're not called to be a, up, a, up a, a mountain in a, some little cave somewhere. Elijah wasn't that sort of person. He's rugged, but he was right involved in the heart of the culture but he wasn't part of it. He was very distinct and different. He wasn't wrapped up in it, and that's the same for us. So that's a little about who he was. What motivated him? Elijah, what motivated him? Well, we've got a verse, which I think will go on the screen, which gives us an insight. It's 1 Kings 19.10. He says later, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. little insight into his motivation. Elijah had a burning passion for God. Now, that's important. That's what drove him. You see, you can be driven, and I could be, sometimes by anger at the state of the nation. That's not necessarily wrong. Elijah felt that as well, I think. But actually, what he really felt was a passion for God's name. I want them to worship God. What are they doing? Worship Baal. It's leading to disaster. I want them to know the Lord my God. Now, that is what needs to drive us. Do you want people to know Jesus? Do you think it would be so much better if you turned to the Lord? And that's what drove him, a zeal for the Lord his God. That was a burning passion. And it it did lead to a holy indignation when he saw the name of the Lord abused, when he saw the ways of God despised and ignored. That is right. When you watch your news, do you get indignant? I I do, I know, I'm getting a bit old, getting a bit Victor Mildrey, you know, shouting at the television, but... But actually, to be honest, provided I can turn that into passion for Jesus, that's not bad. If it's just moaning at the television, that's bad. You need to wheel me out and put me in a nursing home. But but to be honest, if it's not merely that, and at the moment it still isn't, it's provoking me. We need the gospel. Oh, God, move in my nation. I pray that. I pray you do. Be provoked that I want to see the name of the Lord. Do you grieve over our nation? I mean our nation. Us, our town. Do you grieve over it? Do you sometimes think, oh no. You know, as you see people and their lives wrecked, I don't mean contempt. A deep, Lord, please help me to reach them with the gospel. Help me to see this change. Help me to see this atheism, this amorality, this ignorance go. That they might know you and your ways. 
When Elijah does appear, and that verse we read, he describes himself like this. He says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve. Basically, he says, I serve the living God. That's beautiful. Do you see yourself like that? I serve the living God. There is a living God and I'm his servant. I believe we should think of ourselves like that. I am serving the living God. And when I go into my life, when I go into work, when I go into the culture, when when I'm in the world around me, I am a servant of the living God in amongst you. And I want to bring him to you. Now you could say, oh, I bet it was easy for Elijah. We always can do this and think, yeah, it was easy for Elijah. It wasn't easy for Elijah. It really wasn't. In Ahab's reign, God, the true God, Jehovah, was out of fashion. Just like it seems today. Doesn't it seem today in England that Christianity is out of fashion? You can worship any nonsense and you'll be all tolerated. Oh, isn't that nice? It was splendid. What do you believe in green men? How nice that is. Well, actually, oh, you believe we all came from, you know, bananas that came alive and walked, you know, make it up. But you say, I believe in Jesus. Oh, you primitive idiot. So, actually, we, we are not in fashion. Well, the God of Israel wasn't in fashion. Actually, the hideous worship of Baal was what was in fashion. Jezebel had made sure that there were hundreds of Baal prophets and hundreds of, presumably, scores anyway, of temples to Baal where you could worship him. And Baal was very exciting to worship. You could have orgies worshipping Baal. You could sacrifice your kids to Baal. It was all blood and guts. It was quite exciting. Get drunk, you know, all sorts of stuff went on. Baal was where it was at. It's where the action was. It's where all the, whoa, worshipping God. Well, that was a passé. And, 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 you know, it's a bit like that for us. Oh, Christian, that's boring. You know, oh, yeah, one man, one woman for life. You know, come on, let's... But actually, that is how it can be in our life. And it can feel out of, out of fashion. But Elijah's not phased. He's coming to talk about the true living God who he serves. And we mustn't be phased. Don't be phased by the fact that people mock our Christian values. We're not talking about laws, we're talking about the God who we worship. We're talking about the Saviour, our Lord Jesus Christ. We have got some wonderful news and we must not back off it. Elijah's authority comes because he knew that he served the living God. He knew God was alive. Do you know he's alive? Amen. That's a good starting point. You know that God is alive. That we serve the living God. You know that you're here on this earth to serve him. Do you know that? Do you know that's your first and foremost goal in life? I know you do all sorts of other things, but that's all part of your service. You you honour him with your work and serving him by working well in secular work or whatever work you're doing. And you honour him by being a good wife, husband, parent, uh, person, young person, old person, by honouring him. But our lives are service to him, aren't they? That's how we live. We have to see it all like that. He's the living God and we live to serve him. We must see that as the driving force of our lives, a conviction reflected in all that we do. Okay, let's move on. Elijah, what did he do? What did he do? Well, you'll find two things that he did. We're going to briefly talk about them. This is our last point. Two things. I think it is. Yeah, it is. don't want to make promises I can't keep. It's the last point. Two things he did. Prayer 
and proclamation. That's what he did. Let's look at it quickly. Elijah said he was zealous for the Lord our God. Well, what could he do? Well, he started with prayer. We need James to help us there, which we've read. In James, we're told that he prayed earnestly. I want to get the quote right. He prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain. There we are. He's a man like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, etc., etc. So, Elijah was a man of prayer. Now, why was he a man of prayer? Well, you've got a prayer meeting tonight. Can I push it? Get along and pray. Here's why he's a man of prayer. He prayed because he knew that God was alive and ruled over everything. See, if you know that there is a living God who is sovereign over all, talking to him is quite an important thing to do, isn't it? And if you're not praying much, it's a little bit of a challenge about how much you really believe that there is a God who made everything and who is in control of everything and can influence everything. So it's a good little tweak of your values to say, actually, prayer is very important because God is the most influential, important being in the universe. So talking to him is very important. He prayed because he believed that with God, impossible things can happen. I think when Elijah looked at his culture, it was dire. It had been nearly 60 years of decline and it was now atrocious. We've now got Jezebel as queen and worshipping Baal. But he still believed that God could change things. Do you believe that? You believe God can change things in Hastings? Amen? He has done a bit already, hasn't he? I believe God can change things in the United Kingdom. I believe prayer changes things. It moves the hand that moves the world. I think he prayed because he must have been aware of his own weakness as opposed to what he was handling. Who was he to deal with this king? This king was the, I don't know, we didn't even count them, was one about the tenth that had been committed to idolatry. This was years of a cultural decline. And this man was a powerful man. Ahab was no uh, weakling. And he got a dreadful wife who was a real dragon. So he must have felt his weakness. That's probably why he prayed. But here's the final thing I think I learn about his prayer, and this is fascinating. I think he prayed with a faith rooted in God's word. And this is quite interesting. Because when you read it, you think, what's all this don't let it rain stuff? Is that just a whim of Elijah? You know, why? Well, Elijah said, he comes out boldly and he says, it's not going to rain until I say so. Where did he get that from? Well, I'll tell you where he got it from. In fact, I'll show you. If we can put up Deuteronomy 11, this is where he got it from. He got it from God's word. Look at it. God says, if you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today, this is to his people, old covenant people, faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your grain your new wine and your oil. And your oil. I will provide grass in the fields for your cattle and you will eat and be satisfied. Okay? Be careful. This is God speaking in his word, which, which Elijah would have known. Be careful or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will shut the heavens so that it will not rain and the ground will yield no produce and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord is giving you. 
You see, Elijah didn't just think up, this is a good wheeze, I'll ask for no rain. He knew God's word. And my, I think, confident guess, if I can put it that way, is that Elijah's prayers were rooted in this. And he came through to a place of faith. Basically, he prayed, God, you said, when they get into idolatry, you would give a drought. Will you please give us a drought so that I've got something to say to these people? God, you said, your word said, if we follow you, we get rain and harvest. If we go away and worship other gods, we get drought and trouble. God, it's time for you to act. It's time for you to bring the drought you promised. Now, you might say that's a strange prayer. I believe that was a passionate prayer. And then he came to faith. He knew God was going to do what God said. So this is faith rooted in God's word, which all faith needs to be. Our prayers need to be rooted in God's word. We need to pray back God's word to him. him. We need to say, God, you've promised this. Now, it's not always going to be grim stuff. Hopefully, it'll be, you know, you've promised that you don't want anybody to be lost. You've said, if I ask in Jesus' name, this is the sort of thing. I believe that's the sort of man Elijah was. He prayed earnestly because he knew God could do something. He could do nothing. He was weak. Who was he? But he got God's word. And in God's word, it clearly said, when a nation behaves like my nation, this should be happening. God, make it happen. And then he got into faith and he said, right, Ahab, God's going to start doing what God said. There's going to be no rain. And it's not going to change until there's a change in the nation. When I see the change in the nation, I know the rain's going to come. Now that's actually what happened. That's the story. You can read it for yourself. So he saw that the nation needed to be turned back to God and he, in his day, got hold of God's word for him and prayed it back to God. Now I encourage you the same. It's not going to be the same word, but I think you need to get hold of God's word and fire your prayers with it and pray earnestly, and a growing faith will come, and a confidence that God's going to break in in your nation. But he didn't just pray, he proclaimed. Because what happened is after praying, and I think probably coming to faith about this drought, Ahab knew, uh, sorry, Elijah knew he needed to connect the drought to the minds of Ahab and Israel. See, they might just be saying, oh, we had a bad year, no rain much this year, must be global warming, you know, Maybe the Ice Age, I don't know what they would have said. But actually, he needed to connect it. He needed to get in there and say, this is God. Now, sometimes we will do that quite confrontationally, like he does, but it's not all like that. Sometimes it's with much greater care, but we're saying to people, actually, the answer to our problem is God. You know, people at work, troubled, confused, say, I know, you know, losing their jobs, all sorts of things, say, Jesus has got an answer for you. It's not all, no, I don't want us to get too confrontational. Be sensitive to the spirit. But what you have to do is people have to hear the connection. It's no good him just being up a mountain praying for a drought, saying, ha oh, drought. That'll sort them out. Well, they won't even take any notice of it, will they? You've got to get in there and say, this drought is from God. This drought is a God thing. Now, you've got to hear what I'm going to say. We're only going to get rain when God's been dealt with. That's basically what he did. He brought proclamation. He was not indifferent. He was different, as I said, but he wasn't indifferent. He, he wasn't just looking for the nation to have a bad time. He was looking for it to come back to God. And so when the bad time came, he saw it as an opportunity to call the nation back to God. We are going through bad times in this nation. There will be worse. There's going to be a huge financial constraint on this nation over the next few years. Jobs will go. People will hurt. Perhaps I know they already are. 
Now, in the middle of that, we don't want to be saying, oh, judgment of God, quite like Elijah, but we do want to say this is an opportunity for people to come to know Jesus. When things get tough, it is an opportunity for us to share the good news with them, isn't it? But they have to be told. (laughs) Otherwise, it just feels like it's tough. There's no hope. There's no answer. Well, you have to come and proclaim the hope and the answer that Jesus Christ is a saviour, is a Lord, is is someone who will bring hope and healing and compassion. Thank God we're in the new covenant. So some of what I'm saying is a picture for us rather than an exact example. We're not really looking, as an Elijah people, to just keep booming out judgment. Fortunately, we live after Jesus has died and risen. There is hope for people, but they do need to hear about it. We need to pray and we need to proclaim. Let's not be frightened of seeing or seeming odd and narrow-minded. I think Elijah looked quite odd and he was quite narrow-minded, but actually God backed up what he said and it changed the nation. It broke something. It was a hard battle for him. It's a whole other story. But actually, we are called to be those sort of people. I don't care how old you are or how young you are, This is what we are in Elijah people. We're called to see that this nation needs the gospel. More than anything, it needs the gospel, doesn't it? It needs Jesus. The people who are hurting around us need Jesus. We need to pray and we need to proclaim that we know what the answer is. It's Jesus Christ. I pray God will really help you to do that. Let's stand together because it's been a full morning and you've heard a lot, I know. But I just want to pray as we finish, that we will be what God's called us to be. And you particularly will be here in Hastings what God's called you to be. Let's just stand for a moment before God. Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus. Lord, I do thank you for this church. I thank you for King's Church Hastings. I thank you for the incredible things you've done with us here. I thank you for the amazing stories we have over 30, 40 years, whatever it is, nearly now, since things first began. I thank you, Lord, that you have done so much. So many people have been saved. I thank you, Lord, that a handful of those who are saved are ending up leading churches. But scores of others have ended up just totally changing the history of their families. I can think of people who came from terrible backgrounds, who've become healthy, balanced parents or, 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 or work people or whatever. Lord, I thank you. I've again and again seen the gospel radically change individuals' lives here in Hastings. I thank you, Lord, for what you do. I thank you for the gospel. And Lord, as we face this next I guess, phase in our country's history, knowing that there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of confusion and a lot of godlessness. We ask you, Lord, to give us the courage to be like Elijah. Help us here to be an Elijah people. Help us, Lord, not to be tied to our unimpressive background, not embarrassed by our shepherding family and be able to get in there and speak the truth proclaiming the good news of Jesus. Help us to be a people, Lord, of prayer, who earnestly pray on the basis of your word for breakthroughs in our nation. 
And then on the back of our prayer life, boldly proclaim the good news about Jesus. Lord, please help us to be all you've called us to be here in Hastings. And I pray we see hundreds of people saved in the next few years. I pray, Lord, in a few years' time, there are multiple services in this room because they need to be. I pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.